While our kids are leaving, if I could encourage you to take out your Bibles and turn to the second book of Samuel, um, chapter 13 and 14. That will be the text out of which I will be teaching this morning. Second Samuel, chapter 13, 14. We're heading our way to the end of the book and um, the end of David's life. Um, for those of you who are new, we've been um, studying the rise and, and, of course, the last few weeks, the fall of, of King David into some pretty horrific sin. I want to begin this morning um, by... Um, laying out before you what I think is an important counterpart to the gospel, the glorious gospel of grace, this, this thing that we, um, the Christians love, the idea of grace. I mean, it's what makes Christianity distinctive amongst all of the other um, approaches to, to God or the gods. Um, grace, uh, the belief that there is, the biblical belief that there is nothing we can do, um, no performing that we can do, no works of charity or um, humanitarian work in order to gain acceptance from the Lord. Um, because everything that we do, every act of performance, every good work, every good deed is, is tainted by our own sinful motivations, which means nothing really is acceptable to the Lord. Um, that is, um, we can't do it. But the gospel, of course, teaches us, and it's, it's what, um, what is so glorious about what Jesus has done and, and the heart of Yahweh in the Bible is the, the reality that everything that needed to be for, performed and done and worked um, was done not by us but by Jesus in his perfect life and, um, and that everything that we deserve because of our sin he absorbed in himself in his death. So the only thing we can do is, is to rely on the fact that God did it for us, um, that God lived our life that we couldn't live in Jesus, and he died the death that we deserve to die um, on the cross. And so we rely entirely on the fact that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And, and the gospel simply calls us to, to trust in that, to rely entirely on the fact that God has done it. Now that is um, a short little explanation of the gospel of grace. Um, and for those of us who have had um, the Holy Spirit take and, and breathe that into the DNA of our souls, not just our minds, but our souls. The benefits to that grace taking root in the heart of God has really done it it's, are, are innumerable. It's, you know, it produces joy in the soul. It produces hope in the soul. It produces freedom in the soul, um, life in the soul. Um, it's just so, so innumerable are the benefits of this gospel of grace, um, the idea of grace. But there's a counterweight that I think is really important to keep us from a misunderstanding of grace that I think is important, which uh, is uh, something that I think the life of David points out too. This counterweight has to do with the idea or that what we do actually does indeed matter. Maybe not for our acceptance before God, but it does matter. You can, you can almost sense the mistaken understanding of the gospel that would say, if... I can't do anything to be accepted by God if I can't do anything to be saved by God, then therefore, and here's the conclusion, and it's a false conclusion, to which the counterweight protects us, is that therefore my doing then doesn't matter at all. See, the, there's a, a faulty conclusion that a person can come to on the basis of... Um, a faulty understanding of how grace works and how salvation works. If, let me restate, if I can't do anything to be saved or accepted by God, it's all on Jesus, then my doing doesn't matter. 
And that is the faulty part. The first part is true. We can't do anything to be accepted or saved by God, but the second part is faulty. Therefore, my doing, my, my actions and my decisions don't matter. That's the faulty part. But yet, a lot of people tend to drift towards that um, faulty um, implication of, of grace. That my doing doesn't matter. I've had conversation after conversation with people through the years. Um, spouse, leaving their spouse for another person. And, you know, trying to do the loving pastoral thing of saying, you know, um, not only is this wrong, but there's a lot of devastating consequences if you take this path. To have a response to that, there would be something along the lines of, well, I, I know, but I know that God is gracious and God is forgiving. And I, I sense in that response um, a kind of faulty theology that believes that, yes, I'm saved by grace alone, therefore my actions and decisions don't matter. And not only is that flatly unbiblical, it cheapens the whole idea of grace it tends to make people passive in the living out, the doing of the Christian life, and oftentimes desensitizes or creates a laxity about the sinfulness of sin. That's what it does. So there's this counterbalance that Paul, um, of all the apostles and the writers in the New Testament, the one that spoke about grace the most definitively and the most exhaustively is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this powerful, potent um, little book called Galatians. Um, that uses some of the strongest language in the New Testament, like, who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, that you believe another gospel? Or, if anybody preaches another gospel, let him be damned. I mean, he's so passionate about the gospel of grace in this little book. He argues over and over again, you can't be justified, you can't be accepted by anything you do, period. And a, a confusion of that or a, a contamination of that is anathema. Yet... So passionate about this idea that we're saved by grace, sanctified by grace, or you know we're accepted by grace, and we grow in grace by grace alone, uh, receives a counterbalance at the end of his little book. A counterbalance that's necessary for those who would think, if I can't do anything, therefore my doing doesn't matter. This little powerful little warning that's the counterbalance to keep us from that false understanding of the Christian life. He writes this. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. This is a farming metaphor. Sow seeds and you reap a crop. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, that's a negative word about the nature of sin, will from the flesh reap corruption. So if you sow sin, then you'll, you'll reap corruption in the crop. Um, but the one who sows to the Spirit, you know, by faith, grace, um, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And there's this sowing and reaping thing that is the counterbalance to this gospel of grace. Paul's telling us here, don't be deceived. What you do does matter. What you sow, you will reap. And that is an important thing for Christians to keep in mind, that what you do in this life affects tomorrow. And it's intended to be a, a warning from, um, from taking God's grace for granted or thinking that how we live doesn't really matter. And Paul just lays out this counterbalance. Don't be deceived. What you do does matter. What you sow in this life, even if you're saved, you will reap the consequences. 
Now, I don't have the time to hammer this passage out, but it, it sets the course for w- one of the reasons I believe David's uh, consequences in his life are unfolded before us in, in, in dark, um, graphic colors. Because David is a man who was forgiven by grace, and yet the consequences spill out. I mean, if you've been here in chapter 11, we've seen David, the man after God's own heart, who soared so high. We see him commit adultery, conspiracy to commit murder, and he commits murder. It's just a huge fall. Chapter 12, we, we listen to the prophet Nathan come to him and confront him with his sin. David repents, he confesses, and the prophet, speaking for the Lord, says, you shall not die. That's a prophetic proclamation that David's not going to get what he deserves, and he has removed your sin from you. Now, that is complete and pure, unadulterated grace. You see, David's been forgiven by God for adultery and murder and conspiracy that has ended up in other murders as well. So he's forgiven. He's received grace. But the writer of 2 Samuel spends, let's see, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Seven chapters recording for us the reaping of his action. That, that's a lot of time spent on some pretty dark things. I mean, I was thinking about this this last week. Is, is the writer of 2 Samuel devotes six, six chapters to David ruling over Israel. Good chapters. And then spends ten chapters recording for his, his sin and the aftermath of his sin. As if, hey, we're supposed to understand something about David's sinfulness and sinfulness itself. One of the things I think we're supposed to take from that is if a man after God's own heart so high can stoop so low and see the aftermath of it, well, obviously David is not the king we need. So in that way, it kind of points us, tilts us forward to we need somebody better. And David was the best of the Israelite kings or the best that the Israelite kings had to offer. But also, I think it records for us a man who has been forgiven by grace and who is reaping the consequences of his, his actions. He's reaping what he's sowing. That is, I think these chapters serve as a rather kind of graphic, potent reminder for us um, in the 21st century, um, especially in a culture where morality is oftentimes scorned and mocked, um, the difference between right and wrong, sexually or otherwise, um, the confusion out there. It's, 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 these chapters, I think, are kind of a wake-up. They're supposed to like, sober us as, as Christians to think about the, the, the nastiness of, of corruption and sin and how actions lead to other actions and impact other people. Now, admittedly, as I was looking at this, these are some dark chapters, and I get it. I hope we still have people here by the time we finish the book. Um, like I said, ten chapters of darkness. But you know what? Again, I, I don't think it's by accident. I think we could use in our time a little bit of sobering, you know. Um, This isn't light, it's not festive, it's not fun, and it's not fluffy. It's dead serious. But I think the Holy Spirit takes passages like this and he operates on our hearts and our lives and brings stuff to the surface that if if he doesn't do, there's no healing and growth. And so I just pray you'll listen to the Spirit speak to you through these chapters, either in terms of warning or, or even an encouragement as to how God works. Well, as I said, this passage is about reaping, uh, two chapters, 13 and 14, and it consists of three plots, evil plots that David participates in, and they all actually hang together, which is why I'm dealing with them 
all at the same time. And I'm going to summarize. This is high level. Um, these three plots. And in these three plots, you're going to see David reap sin in his family. And you're going to see David reap things in his own soul. Uh, again, um, two categories. Um, how the sowing impacts the generations and how the sowing of sin impacts his own heart. So may the Spirit give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit says to the church. Plot number one um, has to do with a sex scandal. I didn't know how else to write it. If you have young kids and they don't know what that word means, sex, well, you've got to explain it to them sometime. Um, that's, that's what it is, uh, the sex plot in the family. Um, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry about that. <laughs> Chapter 13 opens up, and it introduces us to two beautiful people. As you can imagine, um, David has a, uh, is attracted to attractive women. Um, Bathsheba was attractive. Abigail was attractive. See, these attractive women. Ahinoam was attractive. And as you can imagine, these different women with David would have these good-looking kids. Well, one of the wives was especially beautiful, and she had two remarkable children, at least two. Uh, Absalom, who is, who is given almost the most description that I've found in the Bible in terms of how he looks. It says that he was actually flawless. Flawless from head to foot. Flawless with his long flowing hair, you know. So he's, he's like the poster child of an, an Israelite king. Good looking. My sense from the text is that he's ambitious, he's a leader, and he's powerful. Um, the, kind of imagine Fabio, only Jewish, you know. That's, that's who he is. For the younger kids, I don't know the equivalent of Fabio, uh, Brad Pitt with long hair, I don't know. Um, but that, he has a full-blooded sister who's also beautiful by the name of Tamar. The verse 1 says she's beautiful. So you have Mr. and Mrs. Israel in the same family, right? Well, she must have been really good-looking because another of David's son by a different wife, so half-brother, half-sister, he sees Tamar, and he is lovesick for her. I mean, even though it's kind of an incestuous thing, it's, he's lovesick, or we might call it lust-hungry. He's been seeing her around the palace, but, but she's off-limits. The reason she's off-limits, number one, is because she's half-sister. It's a big no-no in the Old Testament, marry your half-sister, at least after the law of Moses was given. Um, but on top of that, she's a virgin princess, and the sense is that they, they were inaccessible to the normal people or even to the other princes. So he couldn't get at her. But he's lovesick, he's lust-hungry, he just wants her so badly that the text even gives us a sense that he's ill. Well, with the help of a cunning and crafty wise friend, um, he concocts this plot to get her into his bedroom. The plot goes like this. Um, His friend says, hey, this is what you need to do, you need to act like you're sick, like really sick. And they needed to ask your father, David, hey, send Tamar, my half-sister, in to, to nurse me back to health. And that's what he does. David, he says, um, you know, king, David, father, um, I'm really sick. Would you send, you know, Tamar in to nurse me back to health? And David says to um, Ammon, who's asked for his half-sister, he says, and he doesn't know what he's doing. Again, David is, 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 in each of these plot stories, David is unknowingly complicit or involved in something that hurts one of his children. He says, yes, and then he tells his daughter, Tamar, the good-looking one, says, you need to go in and you need to tend to your, your half-brother, you know, nurse's needs. 
So he sends his daughter in, and the daughter, Tamar, as a good daughter, and she seems to have scruples, and she seems to have character. She says, obeys the voice of her father, and she goes. She goes into his bedroom chambers, and she proceeds to, to begin to feed him. If you want all the gory details, you're going to have to read it for yourself, but it's pretty heart-wrenching. She goes to feed him after she's cooked and kneaded the dough and baked and everything. She goes to feed him, and he grabs hold of her. And the text tells us that he forcibly violated her. That is, he raped his sister. Um, and if that wasn't enough, after the, de- the deed was done, and she passionately pleaded not for him to go through it, but he wouldn't listen to her over and over again and proceeded to violate and rape her. And after the deed was done, he basically kicked her aside like a, like a piece of meat. Um, he, he tells his servant, he says, put this woman, he doesn't even refer to his sister, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. It, it makes it look like she was the culprit in the thing. So here's this virgin daughter of, 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 of David who has now been violated, um, raped by her half-brother. Um, it says that she ripped her virgin clothes, a sign that she's no longer a virgin. Um, she threw ashes on her head, a sign of weeping, and she was weeping with her hands over her head. She went along. Um, and it, the text tells us a little bit later in chapter 13 that she remained desolate the rest of her life, which means she probably never married, never had children. From this act of, of lust, this act of incestual um, rape. Now, you fathers out there, how at this point would you feel if Tamar were your daughter? Now, I'm highly sensitive to, to rape. Um, I can't watch it on television and movies. It's really disturbing to me. And I'll tell you, you know, I, Tamar were my daughter, kind of knowing my own heart and how I'd react. I'd, I'd be so flipping mad. I would boil over. I would want this person to die a, a, a slow, long, painful death with a butter knife. That's what I'd want. <laughs> you say, Decker, you're sick and morbid. No, that's, I'm just saying that's how I would feel. No, I'd feel that way. It's going to put me behind bars if, uh, if that happened to me. Well, David finds out. My guess is many of you men would feel the exact same way. Um, David the king finally finds out that his princess, his daughter, his virgin daughter, has been violated by one of his sons, his firstborn son and natural heir to the throne. And this is what the text says. It says that he, David, was very angry. He was very angry, as you'd expect, expect him to be a father for his daughter. But that's it. Nothing is done. Now, in the law of Moses, um, incest and compounded with rape is a capital punishment. You die for things like that. And here, David gets angry, but his anger lacks commitment to justice. And he, he's the king. That's his function. That's his role. To establish and execute justice. He gets angry, but he doesn't act justly. His son. So the rapist goes off free and his daughter goes into desolation. And you can figure out or understand why. I mean, David has made a similar, though different, mistake, a sexual sin, adultery, and murder in chapter 11. And that failure has crippled his ability to then execute justice for another but similar sin on his son. 
But it was, it's his mandate, it's his function, regardless of how much failure he has in his past, he still as king is supposed to execute justice. But he fails. He fails. And you can see the beginning of, of, of what he's reaping in his own heart. The man has a crippled commitment to do what's right. His heart has been crippled on the inside. The once strong and mighty and just David, who rules with equity and justice, is now the, 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 the king who has lost conviction of heart regarding justice. That's one of the things that David's reaping in his own soul. But he's also reaping it in his family. The parallels are, 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 are crystal clear. As David committed sexual sin of adultery, so here his son, though going farther, commits sexual sin against his daughter. Sexual sin begets sexual sin. David sowed in chapter 11, and now he's reaping in his own family in chapter 13. That's, to prove the point, you, 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 you reap what you sow. And to a, a sexually confused culture that we are, where there's no boundary lines anymore, and they're disappearing, I venture to say they'll disappear in other areas too, that's kind of a, a, a potent word, um, that what we sow in our time, right here in our culture in this day, it's not just about us. It's generational, and it will affect kids and kids' kids. I mean, that's David sowing. He's reaping in his own family. Um, what we sow, we also reap. Well, that's kind of the end of plot one, except to say that when big brother Absalom finds out about this, you know, Mr. Fabio, good-looking one, his full-blooded sister, his good-looking, these are the Israeli sweethearts, when he finds out what happens to his, his little sister, and I think she was his little sister, I'm not sure about that, well, he comes unglued. He, the text actually tells us, and you can understand why, Absalom hated Ammon, his half-brother, because he had violated his sister Tamar. Imagine how you would feel to know that your, your, your sister was treated that way and then kicked to the curb. And I venture to say at this point, Absalom was probably pretty angry at his father too because he did nothing about it. His sister is in desolation and, um, and the rapist goes free. Well, that's kind of plot number one. Plot number two is uh, prompted by plot number one. And that is, we're told, let me tell you what the... It has to do with the murder plot in the family. Two years go by where Absalom holds this hatred in his heart. Two years of, I'm going to venture to say, calculation, planning, organization to bring down and avenge his sister. And, and that's what's about to, to happen. After two years of seclusion and bitterness and hatred, Absalom comes to David. Notice David is involved in each of these three plots. He comes to David and he says, Father, I want to have a, a party. It's a sheep-shearing party. Now, I've heard of Tupperware parties. I've heard of Pampered Chef parties, um, Avon parties, Mary Kay parties. I don't understand why we don't get parties as guys. You know, like V8 parties or power tool parties, but, you know, it's always for the ladies. Way off topic. Um, 
Well, he's, I, I'm having a sheep shearing party, and, and he says, Father, King, will you come and bring your servants? And David says, no. Too much for you, me bring all my entourage with you. And, and Absalom presses David. He's like, no, I, w- I want you to come. And David says, no, but, but I, I bless your party. Well, then Absalom presses David again. And he says, could, could you send maybe Amnon, my brother, you know, the rapist, over to the sheep shearing party? Anything with shears, not a good thing. Well, David actually, uh, at this point, is, he seems to have some marbles still in his head because he's like, okay, the guy who raped his daughter, why would you want Amnon, he asks. And Absalom presses him again. So David finally caves in. But the, um, the requirement is that all his sons must go. Probably figuring that if all the king's sons are there, then, then, then Absalom's not going to do anything, so it's probably safe. So all the king's sons, including Amnon, get on their mules and they head off to the party. Mules, you know. That was the transportation of choice back in the day. First recorded hybrid in the Old Testament. <laughs> That's bad. They go riding their mules to this place, the sheep shears, and, and uh, unbeknownst to Amnon, he's, he's like an animal that's heading into the slaughter. Um, he's heading into a... a um, a calculated event to bring down his life. And once he's at the party, the instructions were given to get him drunk. Probably bring down his guard. And this is, this is what the text, read in verse, text, read, text reads in verse 28. It says, Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Ammon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Ammon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. So at some point in the party, um, David's firstborn son, Amnon, was was killed in cold blood um, because of what he did to Absalom's sister. And all of the sons uh, of David get on their mules and they head back to Jerusalem, probably thinking they were next on on the chopping block. Again, gives us a sense that Absalom was a pretty powerful man. Um... And Absalom, out of fear of the king, he, uh, he exiles himself. He heads to a kingdom in the north that David doesn't have reach over. It's the kingdom of his maternal grandfather. And there he stays for three years, banished from Jerusalem. Here again, the parallel is unmistakable. As David stretched out his hand to kill Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, so here his son, in like manner, reaches out his hand and kills his half-brother. Sin begets sin. Murder begets murder. What you sow, you also reap. In this case, it's in his own family. Now, say, take a tally for a second here. As a result of David's sowing back in chapter 11, he now has a dead son, a desolate daughter, and a banished murderer as a son. Talk about a a heavy uh, load to bear, to know that my actions have wreaked this kind of havoc in my family. But church, that's, that's how it works. That's what it does. That's why Paul was so um, direct when he says, don't be deceived. 
what a man sows with his life, he will reap. Don't, don't be mistaken about that. What you do and how you act does matter. You may indeed be forgiven, as David was, but, but you sow discord and, and, and sinfulness in your life. You take the path of, of, uh, of rebellion, and, and it's going to come down on you as it was coming down on David. That was plot number two. And you notice how David played a part in each of those plots? He unknowingly gave permission for his daughter to go in where she would be raped. And in plot number two, he gave permission to have the party and sent his sons to the party where his son would be killed. And so it will be also in plot number three, which we're just going to call it the sweep it under the carpet plot. You can call it love without justice plot. You can call it uh, restoration without repentance plot. Whatever. Um, bottom line is, is they're going to sweep something under the carpet that's going that's to backfire in David's face. Well, plot number three comes out of plot number two. Absalom is, has been, is in exile for three years. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 says this. It says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew the king's, that the king's heart went out to Absalom. This is his right-hand man now, um, Joab, the general of his armies, who's going to initiate kind of a manipulative plan to get David to do what he wants him to do. He knows David's heart is, is toward Absalom. Now, Hebrew's unclear as to whether it was toward Absalom for negative or positive, whether he longed for him to come back as a father might to a son, or he was just really angry that, that this murder took place and he wanted to avenge. Um, it's not clear, and, and commentaries are divided, and I think perhaps it's a little bit of both. Um, naturally, a father would be deeply angered by what happened, and I think David was angry. He didn't want to bring a murderer back to Jerusalem. But on the other hand, um, as a father, he naturally would have wanted there to be some kind of reconciliation. Well, Joab knows this, and so what he does is he, he kind of starts this, this, this manipulative plot to get Absalom back. And those two might have been in cahoots, by the way. Um, so what Joab does is he, he solicits the help of this very wise, probably old woman from Tekoa. And he tells her what to say. And she comes into David's um, throne room or, or, or court. And, and she has persuasive story. And she has smooth delivery. And she comes into David telling her story. Only it's a fictional story. But David doesn't know that. And here's the kind of the basics of the story. If you can imagine this old woman coming to David saying, I had two sons. And um, they were out in the field. And they were, you know, doing what they do in the field. She, maybe herding sheep or whatever, and they got into a fight, an argument, then a fight, and, and one thing led to another. No one was there to separate them, and, and, and one of my sons killed the other son. And now my kinsmen are coming to me and saying, um, we want your son, the killer, because we want to avenge the life of the dead one, and so we're going to take him down too. And you have the scenario of one son killing another son, and, and now the, the community wants to kill him, avenge the life. And this woman says to David, what, what am I supposed to do if they kill my only remaining son? I mean, this isn't 21st century where a woman can own property. It all goes to the sons, or at least the firstborn son, or the, after that, the secondborn son. She'll lose everything. The line will be completely the line, which is very important to the Jewish people. The genetic line will be lost. The woman be, will be bereft of all kinds of resources. She'll be pretty much cast out. So she argues, David... To, to David, um, will you spare basically the life of my son that my community wants to kill? Well, David gives her an answer. 
It's an ambiguous one. He says in verse 8, So then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. Now that's ambiguous to say the best. It's like basically, listen, go back to your house, I'll deal with it. Well, this old woman, she's not going to settle for an ambiguous statement. And so she presses David again, like Absalom did. Pressing him. And David comes back a little bit more explicit, and he says, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. He still doesn't answer the question, should the boy die or should he live? But it's a little bit more assertive. The woman is not satisfied with that answer, so she pushes him again. She's like a badger, like a really good used car salesman. She's going to make her mark. Finally, she says, listen, I want you, David King, to swear by the name of God. I want you to swear that my son will live. She's taking it to the ultimate, like vowing in the name of Yahweh that her son will live. And David, probably exasperated, tired, and just wants to get her off of his, uh, his list, says, as the Lord, this is the voice of David, as the Lord Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So she's pushed, 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 goes from ambiguous to explicit, and seals it with an oath. Your son will live. Ah, now that her fictional story, David doesn't know that, is done. Now comes the knife of the, of the agenda. Because what happens next is the woman is going to say, then why aren't you doing the same to your son? This is what she says. This is the, the sword in the argument. The woman said, why have you devised something like this against God's people? When the king speaks in this fashion, he makes himself guilty. For the king has not brought back the one who he has banished. That's talking about Absalom. You can sense the, the, kind of the power of the argument. She's saying, you've just sworn in the name of the Lord to protect my son who killed his brother. And yet you maintain your son, Absalom, who killed his brother in exile. That makes you guilty. Double standard. That's what she's saying. That's the pressure. Now, if you, you equate the two scenarios, you realize there are some important differences. In the case of Absalom, it was premeditated first-degree murder and punishable by death. In the case of the fictional story, it's manslaughter. Two guys duking it out in a field, and one gets a lucky blow, and one ends up dying. That's, that's not punishable by death. David perhaps understood this. Maybe he didn't, but for whatever reasons we don't know, he caves in. He hears in this woman, discerns, well, this sounds like a lot of Joab. And she, he asks her, he says, did Joab put you up to this? And, and the woman says, yes, Joab put me, into the, uh, put me up to this. And so David calls in Joab and he says, you know, you, you win. Go get my son Absalom, bring him back. So he does. Goes and gets Absalom, first degree murderer, brings him back. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, chapter 14, you read that Absalom came into the presence of David, and David the king kissed his son, Absalom. Now, you read that, and you're like, oh, you know, father and son are reunited and reconciled. So good, happy to see them back together again. But that's not the case. Because when David kissed his son Absalom, that's a sign of restoration. But the thing is, is it's restoration without Repentance. It is love without justice. He has swept the murder under the carpet and 
shown outwardly restoration for his son. That, brothers and sisters, is going to reap the whirlwind in the chapters after this. The country will be embroiled in civil war as a result of sweeping it under the carpet of restoration without repentance and love without justice. That is, David is reaping what he has sown. He has a murderer living in Jerusalem, daughter, desolation, and his son is dead. He has reaped what he has sown. I tell you, reading about that kind of stuff just kind of makes you sit up straight, and it should. You think about the lessons that we should draw from this, and, and the main one, of course, I've been saying over and over again, um, and I started with, of just recognizing and believing in the simple fact that what you sow, you will reap. And in this particular case, both in your family and in your own soul. Choices you make as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as a businessman, blue-collar worker, what choices you make, you will reap the consequences of and it will affect the ones you love the most, your family. What you sow, you reap. I'll tell you, man, the, the, my understanding and impression of the culture in which we live is that we live in a culture that is, that is really focused on the now, living in the moment. It's like that Katy Perry song. Um, i trying to think of the lyrics. I'm glad I don't really know them that well. Um, oh, let's go all the way tonight. No regrets, just love. That is, just let's live in the moment right here, right now live in the love and experience the moment. And that's kind of today's culture, live in the moment. You know what, though? David's example and Paul's warning would say, yeah, go ahead and live in the moment now and watch what you're going to reap tomorrow. Watch what you're going to reap in your children's life, in your grandchildren's life. That's, this warning is, is for us to look forward and say, do I really want this unfolding, unleashing of, of all of these potential evils and a reaping of, of a choice that I'm making now that is very selfish. What you sow, you also reap in your family. And then also in your own soul. Do you notice the difference between King David before and after Bathsheba? Before Bathsheba, he was a man who was intense on acting justly. On at least two occasions, he says to his men, we can't touch the Lord's anointed. We cannot avenge or or enact vengeance. He stood for justice. When he heard the claim of a man who said, I killed King Saul on the battlefield, and another one who said, I killed Ishbosheth, in both cases, David acted swiftly, and he acted justly and had both of them executed. He was a man committed to justice, and yet, post-Bathsheba, he's crippled. His heart's crippled. He can't bring himself to do what's right with his sons. How many people do you know who have made mistakes in their lives and those mistakes keep them from doing what they should do with their children? That's, that's what David has done. It's been, been crippled. His ability to do right, justice, has been crippled by his own sin. Um, his sense of wisdom. I mean, pre-Bathsheba, he had a nose for sniffing out conspiracies and secrets, but Post-Bathsheba, he's being pushed around by, 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 by Absalom, by this old woman. 
his caving in, no sense of conviction. And I think that tells us, and I think experience proves this out to be true, that when you sow a life of sin or take a path, then inwardly you become unstable. That you lose clarity of thought. You, you lose that sense of conviction and what is right and just. And you kind of hollow out like, a, like, a, like an oak tree that has been rotted within but looks good on the outside and a big wind comes and just falls. That's what it does to your soul. As you reap the consequences in your own soul, it leaves a person without conviction, without that, that resolve that, that God plants in the heart that trusts him and walks um, in his ways. So it, it, you reap it in your own heart as, as well. He's not a, a man of, of convinced uh, justice anymore. Which, by the way, is why character is so important for a person who's in charge. Um, a leader, king, president, congressman, pastor, father. Because um, a lack of character will cripple your ability to do what's right, to stand your ground, to be resolved in the, in the places you should be resolved in. It's what it does, does to your heart. David is, is not that anymore. And I'll tell you, it just once again points to the reality that uh, for our world to have eternal and permanent justice requires the kind of man who can bear the government on his shoulders. Man who has no inward weakness towards sin. A person who can withstand the different kinds of seductive attacks and ploys and... and uh, temptations, but not crack when the moment presents itself, but who is resolute in justice, who is all-wise, and filled with resolved conviction. And there's only one person that fits that bill. And that, of course, is Jesus, on whom all of the hope of the nations rests. Him. One final encouragement, because I... I know that there are probably some in here who are like, well, Dan, uh, sure wish I would have heard this message about 30 years ago because I'm living in the ruins of, of decisions and choices that I made when I was a young man. And I see it in my family, my grandchildren, my own life, my own heart. What am I supposed to do? This is a day late and a dollar short. And to you, I just want to encourage you with something that I, I, I learned from the Psalms, which give us the inside view of what's happening in David's heart when all of this these reaping is happening and all of these things are falling down around him. That while he was experiencing the aftermath of his choices, he was reaping what he sowed, he still, he still trusted in the Lord. He still trusted in the Lord. A reminder to trust in God's unrelenting goodness in the midst of the ruins of, of, of your life. You know, the, he wrote a psalm about, about this time in his life. Actually, it's a little bit later, but still in the context of everything falling down around him. Psalm 3. In the midst of all of this coming down, he still says, listen to this. It's made into a song back in the 70s. But you, O oh Lord, 
are a shield about me and my glory and a lifter of my head. Hear that? He's got an avalanche of ruin coming down on top of him, and he's still. You, O oh Lord, are my shield and my glory and the lifter of my head. I think that's another reason why he's still a man after God's own heart, because even in the collapse of his life, he still trusts in the Lord. Because he knew something about God that you need to know, and that is that God never lets go of his own. While David was experiencing the aftermath of evil, God's goodness was still beside him. God never abandons us. He walks us through the valley of the shadow of death, as David would say in Psalm 23. Knowing that with all of the evils and with all of the temptations, his rod and staff were still there comforting and guiding. And he was, he was confident that though it looked like everything was coming apart, that your goodness and your mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So even when you're there, you know, God is still good in your life. And you know, he will teach you while experience of the reaping is a hard teacher, it's still a good teacher in the hand of, this, of, of God's Spirit to teach you things about grace and yourself and the sinfulness of sin. God is good and continue to trust in him and watch um, as he brings goodness out of difficult, bad reaping situations. I want you to come to the Lord's table this morning don't tune this part out. I, I, I really want you to respond to the Lord, to this message. If you're on the front end of thinking of making a real bad choice in your marriage, in your life, um, or marrying the wrong person, I, I want you to really think about what was presented here. Like, sin is a real big deal, um, and, and we don't want to trivialize it or, or make light of it um, because Jesus had to die for that sin. It's, it's not cheap. It's very costly. And as you come, just, you know, do your business with the Lord. Maybe you just need to say, all right, Lord, I want to trust you in the ruins of my life. Or, Lord, I'm going to trust you and I'm not going to follow through on this path. And come, of course, with gratitude, knowing that in the eternal realm, with all of the sins that we have sown, Jesus is the one who reaped the ultimate consequences. And to know that he did that because he loves you. So as I pray and prepare us for the table, um, uh, let me have the, those who are serving come. If you're new with us, just kind of follow the crowd. This is reserved for those who are followers of Jesus. Um, this celebrates the death and the life. Not the death, but the blood and the, the death of Jesus. And um, if, if you want to come while the music's playing, just come and, and um, commune with the Lord. Let me pray, and, and we'll take communion together. Father, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would work in, in this room in the ways that only you can work. That if you need to, just batter down walls of people's hearts and allow them graciously to see.